Having found that, let me ask you to pray with me, please. Father in heaven, now as we come to read the scripture uh, and in a moment to think about it, we pray that you would be with us. I trust uh, it's really our heart's desire to hear from you, to walk with Christ. Yet there are many distractions that may enter into our minds that keep us from thinking about this, meditating upon it, or even receiving it, Father. And so I pray that you would enable us uh, by your spirit to concentrate that you would block out any of these distractions and that you would turn our hearts in such a way that we would embrace this truth and see how it really fits us and how we might live it out to your glory and the blessing of your people. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, as we come to this final chapter uh, in this message of of Hebrews, we're we're coming upon a series of sort of exhortations or or applications, uh, we may say. Uh, We're to continue in brotherly love, he says to them, continue in brotherly love. They are to show hospitality to one another, even strangers. Uh, they are to um, uh, visit those in prison, uh, care for, you get the impression, care for those who are and who have been uh, mistreated. Uh, they are to honor marriage. Um, they are to uh, be content with what they have, not covetous. They are to, to, to not love money and... Uh, there to, to really remember their leaders, to look at those, to remember those who've taught them, who spoke the word of God to them, to consider their life, uh, to imitate them. Later on in this very chapter, he's going to say about their leaders, such leaders, they're to obey them. And so, so we get these, these rather, in some sense, disjointed exhortations, applications. And we wonder why this particular list I mean, why these? We can read through Scripture. If you read through Romans, for instance, and get to chapter 12, you'll find a list like this. Read through Ephesians chapter 4, you'll come to a list like this, other lists in the New Testament. And the question is, why this particular list? I mean, why these particular things? There's all kinds of things you could end this message with, I think. All kinds of, of exhortations, commands, applications, all kinds of things you could say to this group of people. Why these in particular? Well, no doubt, if the author of Hebrews is a rational person, we trust that he is, that he's been thinking all this through, and now he's coming to the end, he needs to close this message. Uh, and, he's, and, and, and so he begins to think about the context of their life and the content of his message to them. And he's saying, now, given the context of your life and the content of my message to you, I want you to, th- to think about, to concentrate on these things in particular. 
Uh, the context of their life, you might remember, is that some of them appear to be drifting from the faith. Some of them seem to not be paying attention to what they've learned and heard. They've become cold to the gospel, if you will. And they're living in the context, it appears, of a measure of persecution and suffering. He's talked to them about some of them having been put in prison, others of them having lost their property, all because they're believers in Christ. He's talked to them about the discipline of the Lord in the context of, of suffering. No doubt that included the persecution includes the persecution that they have and are experiencing. Uh, no doubt it includes the suffering that we experience just because we live in a fallen world. Uh, the weariness that comes from that, the, 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 the disappointments that we experience, the fears that we uh, experience, uh, the despair that we might experience in certain kinds of circumstances, the grief that we experience, the loneliness that we may experience, the struggle with sin that we experience, uh, the disease that we experience, all those kinds of things that come into the context of our lives weary us. And he's, he's telling them in his message You need to continue to live by faith. I want you to continue to run this race. I want you to continue to look for that ultimate prize that is being with Christ, knowing, seeing, living, basking in his glory, saying, this is what I want you to do. Keep running. Keep living by faith. So in the context of what they're experiencing and in the content of this message of continuing to live by faith in Christ, he brings to them uh, these uh, these particular words. And you get a sense that perhaps these will help them to live by faith. And you get a sense then, too, these are really hot button issues. These are really important things in the context of their culture. These are the kinds of things that could waylay them on their run, that could, that could get them distracted, that could cause them to, to not finish the race, if you will. And so he lays these kinds of things out. So this week, I want to just to, 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 to give an overview here and to kind of tie them together. Because I think what ties them together is this little expression in verse 6. It's a quote out of Psalm 118. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, in the midst of their lives, it was dangerous to be a Christian. It was dangerous to follow after Christ. Now, we may not feel that immediate danger. Some day we may know it more particularly. I got an email this week from a friend of mine in Albania who's a missionary there saying one of his friends, not an EPC missionary as my friend is, but another friend of his who does missions in Albania has just been arrested with all kinds of trumped up false charges. So it happens. It happens all over the place. It's happening while we speak. It's happened throughout this century, even this little one that we're in and the previous one before. It wasn't just an experience of the first century church. Being a Christian can be a dangerous thing. You and I, even in the context of our lives, can be ostracized by people's lives, from people's lives because we're believers in Christ, because of how we live and all of that. And so he's laying now this out for them, that, that I want you to continue on following me no matter what the consequences from men would happen to be. I want you to continue. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of what they can do to you. That little expression, what can men do to me? Well, quite frankly, they can do a lot. I mean, you remember just from chapter 11, verse 35, it says, Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goat, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. That's a lot, you see. That's a lot that men can do. But you get the impression from the psalmist and, and the application here in, the, in Hebrews is, that isn't anything. Not if God is your helper. Not if God is with you. That's everything. What they can do to you is, 
is minimal. Because you see, God is sovereign over all the circumstances of our lives. You remember when Jesus uh, was standing before Pilate. And uh, you can get this in John chapter 19. When Jesus was standing before Pilate, uh, Pilate said to him, verse 10, uh, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Now, you know, if you're looking on that scene, you'd pretty much agree with Pilate at that point in time. I mean, he was the governor, and he was the one who, it appears, was vested with a decision as to whether Jesus would live or die or be flogged or not or any of those kinds of things. I mean, they came to him for a verdict, and, 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 and he was standing there ready to give the verdict. And so you get the impression that he had that kind of authority. And his point with Jesus was this. Hey, you better talk to me. You better defend yourself. Because if you can defend yourself, maybe that will mitigate some of the, the, the charges. Maybe that will mitigate some of, 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 of what I will, will, will judge in your case. And Jesus wouldn't really talk. He really wouldn't defend himself. And so Pilate was saying, don't you understand that I have authority over you in this matter, so you should defend yourself. Well, here's how Jesus understood the situation. Verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would, have a, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Do you know that's true for us too? Do you know that's true for us too? Do you know that no one has authority over us No one can do anything to us outside of the ordination of God. And so no one can do anything to us. Ultimately, they've got to go through God. Remember, even in Job's case, Satan couldn't do anything to Job without... And I know this is deep stuff. Without... The ordination of God without the permission of God. And so no one can do anything to us. Even when Jesus was suffering under the hands, by the hands of wicked men, they had no authority over him. And even when stuff happens to us, I mean, the stock market doesn't have authority over us. I mean, it goes up and down and it affects us, certainly. But it doesn't have authority over us. God ordains the ups and downs of the stock market. He knows what's going on in the course of that. Disease doesn't have authority over us. Death doesn't have authority over us. Our boss, in that sense, doesn't have authority over us. Don't tell him that tomorrow. (laughs) All right? But but you know what I mean. Uh, Our neighbor's dog that's barking at 3 o'clock in the morning doesn't have authority over us. Right? God is at work in all these things. And he's at work by his authority to glorify himself and to let us share in his holiness. That's the whole point of this, you see. That's why we mustn't miss any of this. And so the author of Hebrews is coming to them and saying, now, don't stop living like a Christian, even though it's dangerous. Don't stop following after Christ, even though they may hate you, even though they may slander you, even though they may ostracize you, even though they may kick you out of their clubs, even though they may imprison you, even though they may take your stuff. Don't stop living like a Christian. Don't stop following after Christ. And even in our context, this can be very personal to us. Because some of us, because we're Christians are quite at odds with people in our own families. Where they don't understand us. Where they even kind of snicker at us. When they're confused by some of the things that we do and some of the things that we say. 
So we know how real that is. Some of us have been slandered, ostracized, marginalized by co-workers who think our opinions are just not very important because we're Christians, we're followers of Christ, and so we're pretty predictable about what we're going to think about things. And so they marginalize us. Classmates may do that. For students, professors may do that. Even to the point, even professors whose recommendations we need, you see, for, for future advancement and all of that may not respect us simply because we're Christians and may, may, may marginalize a student just because of that. Or, or perhaps in line for promotion because you, you don't seem to be able to, 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 to socialize well with all your, all, all, all your co-workers simply because your views and your standards won't allow you to do certain things. So we know that kind of thing. And a day will come in America, I suspect, just because of reading the scriptures. I'm no prophet. I'm not saying it's coming tomorrow or in a hundred years. But the truth of the matter is, as we read through the scriptures, we understand that all the nations will turn against Christians. We trust the U.S. will be part of those pagan nations that turn against Christians. And so when that happens, whether it's our generation or some generation to follow, we understand that the reality of imprisonment, the reality of all of that, is very real. And so the point of the author of Hebrews is, don't be afraid of that. Continue to follow Christ. So he lays out some very basic kinds of things here. He lays out this very basic kind of thing. He says, let brotherly love continue. Well, that's no big surprise that at the end of some Christian message... Uh, the person writing or giving that message will tell a group of Christians to love each other. I mean, Jesus said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples, that you love each other. I mean, that's no big surprise. But understand that in that context, loving other Christians, publicly identifying with other Christians, was dangerous. And so he says, continue doing that. Now, for us, it isn't so dangerous as much as it is inconvenient as much as it might be costly. And not only that, you see, we're called to interact with a very broad base of people. We're called to interact with a very broad base of people as Christians. Um, you, know the, you know the old expression, you, know, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. Uh, that isn't quite true here. We are stuck with our relatives. Because what holds us together as brothers and sisters is the fact that we have the same father. And we have the same elder brother in Jesus. And we have the same Holy Spirit who fills us and leads us. And so that's our common interest. And we understand that we understand we have a common need. And we understand we have common foes. And so we're to see to it, you see, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that none of us misses the grace of God, that we all continue on. And so we need each other. And so he's telling them, in your context, given the difficulties of life, you need each other. He said that before. In, in chapter 3 and verse 13, he put it like this. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, love each other, at least in this way, by, by talking to each other and exhorting each other and, and encouraging each other on in the faith. In chapter 10, he puts it like this, verse 24. He says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but in encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is, he says, I want you to, to stir each other up 
Don't let each other become complacent in this run. Don't, 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 don't take the broad road, you know. If you see a brother or sister on a broad road, exhort them, tell them, come on, get out, get with us. Run this race of holiness that's set before us. Encourage one another all the time. Don't stop meeting together. That is, check the little box, if you haven't already, that says, I want to be part of the Connect Dinners, right? I mean, that's what that means. It doesn't mean just show up for church on Sunday morning. It means connect. Now, don't you feel bad if you didn't sign up for that? Uh, Connect with each other, you see. Uh, You need each other in this race. It's God's provision for you. That's not the only reason that we need each other, but, but it's God's provision. And so, so connect with each other. Don't stop meeting, even if it's summertime. Don't stop meeting together. Get to know each other. You need each other in, in this race, you see. So continue in brotherly love. And it's, it's brotherly love. It's affectionate. It's, it's, it's warm. You see, when one becomes a Christian, it's sort of like those cell phone commercials. I don't even know what company it is, which shows it's a relatively bad commercial, since I can't remember which company it is, or it could just reflect the fact that I don't really listen to commercials much. But that commercial where somebody signs up for a new mobile phone system and walks out the door and sees all of these people out there and says, now that you've signed up for this cell phone, this is your network. These are your people that you can connect with for free. And you see, when someone enters the body of Christ, you become a member of this community, a member of this family. And it's as if every believer that's gone before you is is out there. And and that's brothers and sisters. Those are people that you're to be warmly related to. And all of a sudden, there's an intimacy in the context of your life. You see, one of the great things of being part of a community of people, being part of the family of God, is that we get to experience all kinds of things with each other. On any given day in our church family, a baby can be born and someone can die. Someone can be healed of a disease and someone can get one. Someone can marry and someone can be in the midst of relational problems. Someone can get a job and someone can lose a job. Someone's kid can, can, can make a profession of faith in Christ. Someone else's kid may start a drug habit. I mean, all kinds of things happen in the context of a community like this. And so he's saying, listen, you need to continue in brotherly love. And you're called to love as brothers and sisters, as families, a huge range of people, all kinds of people, rich people, poor people, cute people, ugly people, uh, that's probably not important. I especially need to love ugly people. Um, but uh, all kinds of people, well-educated, not. Old, young, all kinds of people in the midst of this. Some who are easy for you to love just by the nature of your temperament and disposition and location. Others who are more difficult to love. And in fact, he says this to them. He says, I want you to offer hospitality even to strangers. That is, offer hospitality to believers just because they're believers in Christ. Not because you know them. Not because you have a relationship with them personally. But just because they profess faith in Christ. Even strangers. And he says, you know, some of you, you have to understand, may even entertain angels unaware. That doesn't mean real angels necessarily. He's referring back over to some situations in the Old Testament where angels came as human beings looking and they didn't understand that these were angels, really messengers from God. 
But he's saying what you do, that as you entertain strangers, you may not even realize it, but God is giving you a message. God is speaking to you. God has come to you through these very ones who are strangers. Now, again, in those days, it was dangerous to give hospitality to someone who made a profession of faith in Christ who was a stranger. The reason is because that person needed hospitality probably because they had just been kicked out of their home or they had just been persecuted and had to flee or they had just lost their job because they professed faith in Christ and here they were being ostracized by society and what the author of Hebrews is saying, bring them in. Let them come into your homes. Give them meals. Help them out. Even though that may put you at risk because you're helping someone that somebody else just kicked out. And the person who just kicked them out isn't going to like you any better than they like that person they just kicked out. So it can be dangerous, but he says, don't, don't worry. Don't worry about what they can do to you. Don't worry about the slander. Don't worry about the malicious talk. Don't worry about the persecution. Don't worry about any of that. Take them in. Identify with them just because they're believers in Christ. And he calls us to the same. He says to us, listen, when there's someone in need who's a brother or sister in Christ, how can you turn your back on them? Help them. If there's someone sick, go to them. If there's someone in need, provide for them. This isn't an option for us. In fact, we shouldn't even have to put it in those kinds of terms. It should be an instinct for us. It should be just the very flow of our hearts to say, ah, there's a need in the life of someone who's a believer in Christ. And the only inconvenience for us should be when we can't go and help. That should be the thing that bothers us most. Not when it's our turn to go help them. But how can I work my schedule? How can I work my life in order to show hospitality to them? How can I work my life to take that meal? How can I work my life to make that visit? How can I work my life to send that card? How can I work my life that we could take them in? You see, that's really the issue. So he says, show hospitality. And then he says, visit those in prison. Another tremendously dangerous thing for them to do. Because he's saying, visit Christians who are in prison. Now, most of the time in those days, Christians were in prison because they had been thrown in prison because they were Christians. That's why they were there. Now, today, in our country, it doesn't happen, it appears. In other countries, as I just mentioned, it certainly does. It may happen someday in our context. But there are Christians in prison, even now, because they've come to faith while in prison. And he's saying now they're believers We have an obligation to express love to them and to go to them and help them in the midst of their imprisonment. Why? Because we're closer to a Christian in prison in terms of life and affection than we are to our next door neighbor who's like us in every single way except they're not believers in Christ. See, we identify more with the one in prison who's a Christian than one who's like us culturally and socially and ethnically and every other leeway you could find, but isn't a believer. We, we know more about that person because they know Christ. They know their need. They know their enemies. And they know the sufficiency of Christ. And they know the great prize. 
See, that should say, yes. Let me talk to that person. That doesn't mean we shouldn't visit other people in prison or we shouldn't help other people or any of that. But his point is, identify with those. That was dangerous for them. He says, don't worry about other people will think of you when you identify with a prisoner just because that prisoner is a follower of Christ. And even in our day, there might be more uh, ostracism if we're visiting people just because they're Christians in prison than if they're just in the general population. Because, you see, it's not so much what we do as believers, but why we do it that sets us apart from others in our culture. We do it out of worship for God. We do it to glorify Him. We do it to honor Him. We do it because it's His command to us, not our idea. We do it because He's led us to it, not because uh, we've led ourselves to it. It isn't to glorify ourselves and see how great we are. It's to show how great He is. And so he says, go visit them. He says, and very personally, notice how he puts it. He says, visit them as though in prison with them. That's how close the identity should be for us. Why? Because he says, you're also in the body. Paul uses that same expression in 1 Corinthians, the body. And he says, if there's one part of the body that hurts, the whole body hurts. Right? Karen and I spent this past week in Pittsburgh with our daughter Sarah and son-in-law Damon doing the parental thing, doing in their house what we would never do in our own house. We're painting all the rooms. My theory, of course, is the painter's children need shoes, and I would just as soon supply those shoes through hiring the painter. But there were our own kids, so we painted all week. And I trust you that our bodies ached by the second day because we were stretching ourselves in ways that isn't proper. Uh, And uh, in order to do all of this, and when one part of the body hurt, every part of the body hurt. And you see, that's true for us in the context of our own lives, isn't it? We should identify with those in prison, those mistreated, as if we're in prison, as if we're mistreated. Now, please, I understand how lofty these words are. And I don't say this to heap guilt on you or me, but to tell us that this is who we are to be. And if we're not that, and we're not that, then we need to repent and pray and seek ways and change and all of that in the context of our lives. And he goes on to say this, then let the marriage bed be held in honor among all and let the, I'm sorry, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. You see, in their culture, just like our culture, there was sin in, 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 the, in, 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 in sexuality. There was sin there. And of course, the easy target in our day is, is homosexuality and homosexual marriage. And I say the easy target simply because God is so clear in the scripture about his definition of marriage. He says, for a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's God's definition of marriage. That makes it very simple. That makes it very clear. That's also God's way of helping us understand the the rightful place of sexual intimacy. One man, one woman, becoming united, one flesh, all of their lives. So he defines and confines, for our own good, human sexuality or sexual intimacy in marriage. And thus, while I I could say, and I have said in other contexts, and speak about homosexual marriage, to be really honest with you, 
That isn't our problem. That isn't our problem here. Now, some in our congregation, and I know them, they know me, we've talked, struggle with homosexuality. And they're repentant. In fact, I refer to them as my heroes because here they are in, a, in our congregation struggling with this sin, repentant, and desiring to follow after God. And that's wonderful. That's like the rest of us should be in our own sinfulness, repentant, desiring to follow after God. But that really isn't the primary issue for us. The primary issue for us is for Christians to honor marriage. To, for Christians to honor their marriage vows. For Christians to be pure in their own sexuality, their own sexual intimacy. And the way that we honor marriage, you see, is first and foremost, and the way we honor the marriage bed, is, is by not being sexually active before marriage. That's the way that we honor it. And believers in Christ who aren't married, believers in Christ who are single, should not be sexually active. That's the way that that person honors marriage and keeps the marriage bed undefiled. And so if you've sinned in this area, the word is to repent and sin no more. Right? The way that we honor marriage in the context of, of Christianity, of being Christians, of following Christ, living by faith, running this race, is for Christians to marry Christians. That honors marriage. Marriage is to be this intimate, one-flesh relationship. And if someone is a believer in Christ, it's therefore impossible for them to share a one-flesh, intimate relationship with someone who isn't a Christian. Now, sometimes Christians find themselves married to unbelievers. By that I mean there are times when two unbelievers get married and one of them becomes a Christian. And thus they find themselves married to an unbeliever. Or there are those who thought their spouse was a Christian and found out in the course of the married life that that spouse was not a Christian. And so you find yourself in that kind of circumstance. Paul speaks to that marriage relationship in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But for those who are believers in Christ and unmarried, the word is the way that you honor marriage is by marrying believers. So that if Christ is the center of your life, then you can share intimately the very center of your life with that one with whom you're marrying. And if that person doesn't have Christ as the very center, the very heart of their life, how can you honor marriage? And how can you honor marriage when marriage is to be a reflection between uh, a reflection of the love that Christ has for the church and that the church has for Christ? And so we honor marriage by believers marrying believers. That's important to us. That's really an application for us as well. And then, of course, we need to honor our marriages and honor our marriage vows as believers. The big hit that Christians take in these days, and we understand that, is that Christians get divorced at a rate that seems to be pretty close to the general rate of divorce. And so how can we harp on improper marriage relationships when we're not honoring our own marriage vows? And so he says, I know that the culture isn't going to understand this any more than they understand not being sexually active before marriage, any more than they understand not marrying an unbeliever. The culture will harass us to death on those two issues just right there. And our young people out in a culture and society that's encouraging sexual expression, that's encouraging 
uh, marrying somebody that you love, regardless of their faith. But we must honor our marriage vows, those of us who are married. And we must keep the marriage bed undefiled, meaning we're not to be in adulterous affairs. That we're not to be engaged in pornography. That we're not to be in situations that degrade sexual intimacy with your spouse. I tell this to men all the time. I suppose I should tell it to women too, but I don't know how you think. (laughs) That's been proven. Uh, (laughs) But I tell men all the time, don't go to movies where there are naked women. Don't go to movies where there is sexually explicit stuff. That's dishonoring to your wife. So don't do that. That dishonors marriage. Even if it's a good story, even though everybody else has gone there, don't be afraid of what your coworkers will say to you when you say, I didn't go see that movie. Don't be afraid of that. What can they do to you? Say you're stupid for not going to see that movie? You saved eight bucks or maybe 15, depending on what part of the country you're in. Right? Don't do that. Dishonors the marriage bed. And I know pornography is rampant in our culture. And I know it's a struggle for Christian men. But don't get involved there. Repent of that. Get help. It dishonors the marriage. And the Bible gives very strict uh, guidelines concerning divorce. Don't divorce without biblical cause. For Christians, it means that there's been sexual unfaithfulness. Or if you're married to an unbeliever, that unbeliever wants out of the marriage. But that's really it. I must confess again that some of the heroes that I have in the faith are those people who are married to spouses uh, uh, who are skunks. (laughs) And yet, they continue to stay married because they have no biblical grounds for divorce. And I think, yes, that's running the race. Even though all their friends are saying, divorce this louse. I say, no, I don't have biblical grounds to do that. I know he's an unbeliever, but he wants to stay in the marriage. I know that, 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 that he professes faith in Christ, but, but he's been faithful sexually. Therefore, I have no biblical grounds for divorce. Therefore, I'll stay in this marriage. Then he goes on to say, be content with what you have. Don't follow the world. See, the world continues to tell us that success is is accumulation, that security is accumulation. And all of that, you see, plays to our our security issues, it plays uh, to our selfishness, and it plays to our pride. We want more stuff so we can feel more secure. We want more stuff so we can have more than you, so you'll look up to us and say, wow, that person's really a success. I wish I were in their shoes. And, and here the author of Hebrews says, no, it's not that at all. It isn't that at all. Because God is with you. And as long as God is with you, even if you have nothing, you have all that you need and more. And that's a hard concept for us to get our heads around. It's simply the truth. And again, that's why we need to continue in brotherly love. It's why we need to continue on together in our lives. And the reason we need to do that is we, keep, we need to keep reminding each other of these truths. 
When we get together and there's a need, we continue to need to encourage each other. Let's meet that need. And someone was saying, I've never visited somebody in the hospital before. I've never taken a meal before. I've never taken someone into my home before. And somebody else in your group might say, but I have. Here's how I did it. Or maybe none of us has done it. So let's hold hands and let's shake in our knees and let's go do it. Let's trust God. Let, let's see if this is really true. Let's really help somebody in these kinds of circumstances. We're new at this. And this is scary and inconvenient and costly. Or when there is someone struggling in their marriage, to be able to hold hands together and say, I know this is painful, but please don't make this mistake. Please don't take this action. I know it's hard. Let's walk this through together. And it may be it never gets better, but hang on. Because there's a prize, you see. It's holiness. And don't worry what other people say to you. What can they say to you? I was at a, heard a missionary speaker uh, not too long ago. He said some wonderful things. He said in their mission agency, and they send their missionaries to very dangerous parts of the world. He says in their missionaries, missionary agencies, when, when their people are threatened by physical pain, they're taught to think, oh, they're threatening me with holiness. They're saying that if I don't stop believing in Jesus, they're going to make me more holy. And when they're threatened with death, they're trained to think, oh, they're threatening me with heaven. They're saying that if I don't stop believing in Jesus and telling other people about Jesus, then they're going to send me to heaven. You see, don't be afraid about what people think of us because of the kinds of people we embrace. Because of the kinds of people we interact with. Because of the kinds of people we share our lives with. And share our homes with. And share our money with. And share our time with. The world says we should always be sharing uh, time and space and money with those a little bit above us. So, so, that, so that we can be pulled up in society. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you should always find people who are in more need than you and are more ostracized than you and more mistreated than you and more needy than you. And those are the people you're to identify with and you're to embrace and you're to love. And don't be afraid about what other people are going to say to you. Christian kids in school, I know this is a tough one for you. But you need to talk to other people, other Christians in your schools. Even if they're more nerdy than you. Right? Go find somebody even more nerdy than you who professes faith in Christ. And befriend them. Ah, that's running the race. And you may say, but I won't get popular. I, I won't then get invited to this and invited to that. Trust me, when you're my age, you won't even remember high school. <laughs> run the race fortunately for us we have one who's run this race that quote from verse 6 is a quote from Psalm 118 I read portions of that for our call to worship this morning the significance there for us is not only that the author of Hebrews quoted it, but it's likely that our Lord Jesus sang it. 
And it's likely that our Lord Jesus sang it after he had this last meal with his disciples and when he went on to be crucified. Because you see, in the Passover meal, Psalms 115 through 118 were sung after the meal. And the scripture tells us that after they they had eaten, they sang a hymn and then they went out. Now part of that hymn is a little expression that we rather glibly sing from time to time, which is, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I don't think the Lord Jesus sung that glibly on his way to the cross. But that was his heart. And that was his heart because he had already sung, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Well, if he had asked that question at that point in time, which he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, the answer would have been, men can kill you. Men can beat you. Men can embarrass you. Men can mock you. When he got up from the prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, he essentially said, what can man really do to me? The Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. And see, when we face the world we face that's tempting us in all kinds of directions and giving us all kinds of cues and all kinds of incentives and all kinds of motivations not to run this race, not to continue in brotherly love, not to continue offering hospitality to strangers, and not to continue to to visit those in prison because they're people of God, to identify with them, not to identify with Christians who are being mistreated, not to honor marriage, not to be content with what we have. When the world continues to tempt us away from all that, in all kinds of ways, we're to say, but what do they know? What can they really do to me? What can the world really do if I don't follow after its tenets? And the answer is nothing. Everything bad that comes to us from the world is intended for good that we grow in holiness. And if all they can do is kill us, then all they can do is threaten us with heaven. But to get strength, you see, we're to look to Jesus. He understands all of this. And he'll come back to us time and time again by the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. And he will say to this, I'm your helper. Don't be afraid. I watch the sparrow. It can't fall. I watch your enemies. They can't do anything. No one, nothing has authority over you, Jesus would say, but me. Now that doesn't mean you won't have pain. And that doesn't mean you won't experience very difficult things. And that certainly doesn't mean you won't experience death. But you'll know that I'm with you. Keep running. Let's pray. Father, I pray, even over this meal right now, that you would take this bread, this juice, and you would use it in such a way that would remind us of Jesus, that we would look to him, that we would hear him say, I'm your helper. Don't be afraid. They can't harm you. Keep following me. And that as we hear that, that we would be strengthened by it, would leave this place resolved to love each other, to be hospitable even to strangers, to visit those in prison, 
to identify with those mistreated, to honor marriage, and to continue to trust you to provide all of our needs. And Father, this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture does tell us that on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the remembrance today is that as Jesus went to the cross to die for us, he knew that his father was with him. He knew that the Lord was his helper. He needn't be afraid because even wicked men couldn't do anything to him. And even in their wickedness and their doing, it brought about our salvation. God is with us. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who trust in Christ, all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy, all those who believe and depend upon Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, the savior of sinners, freely the one who's died for us. And all of those who desire to live running the race, to live as a follower of Christ, to live as one continuing in brotherly love and all of that. That's true for you. Let me ask you to come to this table. Here in these two sections, come down this aisle to my left, these two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, And as you do hear the Lord Jesus say to you, I am your helper. Don't be afraid. Please come. Pray with me, Father in heaven. Uh, We thank you that you never take your eyes off of us. Thus, your grace is always abounding to us. We pray that we receive your grace and we're empowered by it, thankful for it and walk in it. Father, we pray this for many in our congregation, for the kids in Romania. We pray that today they would know your grace. As they worship there, we pray that, uh, that, that your grace would abound to them, that it would flow from them as they minister to the staff and the kids of the orphanage. And may this be an experience that they return addicted really to walking with you and trusting you and seeing you in every corner of their lives. Father, we pray that be true in VBS this week, that kids would come to know you. Father, we're grateful that you've given us the vision that you changed the hearts of kids, that this isn't some some babysitting service, this isn't some fun and games thing, but this is a time when our kids have a great deal of fun, and we do too, but that you work in their lives. We pray that more and more kids would come to know you and to walk with you through this time. Father, we give you thanks that Lita is here with us today. Uh, We thank you for her perseverance, uh, and Wilbur's as well. We thank you for their testimony of faith. We thank you uh, for your work in her body. We pray continue that you continue to, to heal her and strengthen her. 
Father, we thank you that Eileen's here. We continue to pray that you would bless her. Father, continue to heal her, strengthen her, uh, increase her faith in Scott's and the children, that they would see you work and love you. Uh, Father, we pray for those grieving for Shannon Sells this morning. Father, she grieves the loss of her father, that you would be with her and Rick and their families. Bless them that they would know that you are with them. And Father, for Barbara, she grieves the loss of her mom. Uh, We pray uh, for Barbara and her family that you would be with them. Thank you for Muggy's life and and, uh, her sweetness to us. And we pray that uh, uh, she is enjoying herself tremendously today in your presence. Father, for each of us, we pray that we would never be afraid of walking with you, that, that we would stand firm knowing that you're with us, knowing that you ordain the steps of our lives and that no one can do anything to us. Uh, so, Father, help us to walk, to continue to run, to love each other, to be hospitable to each other, to visit one another, even those mistreated and those who, as you would put it, might be the least of your brothers. And Father, that we would continue to honor marriage, that we would continue to depend upon you for all your provision, and we would count nothing upon the world. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that the response to our benediction is for us to sing together the doxology. Please receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here be.